picture it if you will, two men with a unique obsession. The obsession to let a machine designate their very fates, week to week, month to month, for the rest of time. Why? All for their own sense of amusement. A chuckle or two, but it's only a matter of time before Michael and John discover there's more than fun and games waiting for them on Stream Police. Yes, you heard it here. This is Stream Police, where we tell you what's good, what's bad, and what's etc. and so on. I'm John Otney. <laughs> Joining me, as always, is Mr. Michael Seventy. How are you doing, Michael? I'm doing great. If you couldn't gather from my introduction, Stream Police is, of course, the podcast where we take films randomly selected through the Netflix randomizer and review them. Last time we reviewed the 1975 Canucksploitation. It's a hard word. <laughs> Uh, film Shivers, which neither Michael and I could recommend, but that won't be the case today because today we are doing something a little different. We are doing nothing but recommending things in our Twilight Zone extravaganza. Uh, the idea here is that Michael and I have each selected five Twilight Zones uh, episodes to recommend, considering this show is widely available on Netflix. Our only prompt was to try and find maybe more obscure or underrated episodes because... And we've all heard of the big ones, Time Enough at Last, Monsters Do on Maple Street, uh, the one where William Shatner goes crazy on a plane and squares <laughs> off against that monster that looks like it's made of carpet. Long title on that one. I, don't <laughs> I can never remember the name of that episode because it's got it's, it was Nightmare at tw- tw- yeah, 20,000? I think it's 20,000 feet. I think if I was better at measurements, I yeah, could... that might be ridiculous. That might be space. <laughs> Nightmare in space. And, you know, considering it's a Twilight Zone, it might be space. It might be space. You never know. But before we get into our Twilight Zone conversation, I thought it'd be fun to just talk about a few other Halloween-related things. Uh, Michael, I know you saw Rosemary's Baby uh, in theaters. Theater. Uh-huh. <laughs> in a theater. <laughs> you did go to multiple ones. Uh, can, can you, I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um it's uh, over at the Bijou, a really, really awesome uh, local theater. They they're kind of doing a Halloween uh, Halloween month, <laughs> I guess. And uh, Rosemary's Baby was the other night, and uh, me and my girlfriend Britt's one of our uh, favorite movies. And honestly, uh, I, seeing it on the big screen, it, it, this is the best that I've ever seen it um because it really made me appreciate like the sound design for one thing of the movie like the i don't know the the audio in the theater was really good and it just i I never really i guess on some level i I knew that that was a a huge part of uh the atmosphere that it you know makes that movie just so unnerving but um it really is kind of um incredible and Another thing is, uh, maybe this is just like now that I'm seeing it after, I don't know, going through film classes and whatnot. Uh, but so much of the how the movie works and how it's able to be kind of how it's able to uh, misdirect the audience so well is, I think, in the editing. Because in especially in the uh, first act of the movie, so many scenes um, end like. A, a cut before they, they they cut out a beat before they should and it, it's kind of it sort of forces you to you, you can't really stay on top of the narrative so you're kind of forced to just uh go along with uh you're forced to be kind of absorbed into the world that uh plancy is creating so 
yeah, there's things like that that I just um, really kind of appreciated this time around, and it's just a great, great movie. And that end is so disturbing. I remember the first time I saw it. For, uh, for some reason, right after I saw it, I went to go get dinner, and I had shrimp scampi, and I just I couldn't eat it. I just felt so. <laughs> oh yeah. I know, just my imag- my imagination of what this this baby looks like, and just all sorts of. Yeah, totally, and great choice not to. Yeah, did you know that originally? I believe it was either, uh, I, I think it was William Castle. I think it was William Castle who said uh, that he, he wanted them to have, like, uh, you know, some weird puppet or something, like, some, some like, <laughs> <laughs> some horrible, like, creation and, and to show, uh, in, you know, inside a little, the carriage there what the baby looks like. But um, it, I thought it was a really smart decision to just uh, do that cutaway to Satan's eyes and not actually show that, like, that was... I, I don't know that a very kind of sort of a don't show the shark kind of thing, but you know, in, in that vein. <laughs> I take it then you've heard that William Castle was initially interested in directing, directing. the movie, yeah, <laughs> but they they didn't think it was such a good idea. I would have loved the film. I think <laughs> at the yeah the phone booth, he's the guy yeah. that's outside it, and I, I I would love to see like the. Uh, the, the version of Rosemary's Baby where your your seat is shaking, <laughs> like, there's a little puppet going around the ground, <laughs> <laughs> a little tiny <laughs> devil child. Yeah, and Cassavetes gets uh, spit on his face in this. Oh yeah, yeah. And his version would have Vincent Price oh, somewhere. God. I uh, yeah, Vincent Price needs to. <laughs> Yeah, I think he he should have um, been the baby actually <laughs> at the end of the movie. He'll he'll just be like <laughs> the adult head of Vincent Price inside of the the carriage. I'd I mean that it. if if you know if there's the baby of the devil, that's what I imagine it looks like. <laughs> it looks like Vincent Price. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, that's that's a classic, and I think it is on Netflix too. So oh, it's uh, yeah. Very, very appropriate. It's a recommendation before we get into the main recommendation section. <laughs> Rosemary's Baby. So, The Twilight Zone. It's uh, started in 1959. Four seasons. Classic supernatural and just sci-fi stories. And, uh, I mean, it's pretty incredible to think that here we are in the very futuristic sounding year of 2014 talking about a show that started in 1959. Michael, why do you think Twilight Zone has managed to stay around this long in the public consciousness? Like, what is it about the show? I think it's a combination of just very strong writing and also uh, the fact that they weren't trying to just make a scary story every week that Rod Serling, um, much like uh, Gene Roddenberry a few years later, he was actually trying to make some sort of commentary on uh, the human condition or just some sort of social commentary, something that relates to the times. You know, so, it, there, there was something to the writing. He was trying to address real things, and that makes it where a lot of other shows from that era that are kind of in the same genre might look campy today. Twilight Zone kind of transcends that because that, those elements are there. It's kind of amazing how some of those issues, you know, about race and culture are still relevant today. So in that respect, there's a, there's a handful of episodes that uh, just have kind of a timeless feel to them in their narrative mm-hmm. and, and also in how they were done. Like, I was super impressed watching some of these episodes, how restrained they were. Yeah, you know, in terms of, like, you'd get an episode that's just two locations, 
that's it. And the production value in a lot of these uh, these old episodes uh, still hold up. I mean, every once in a while, you'll, you're bound to see some sort of effect or, or makeup that's a little cheesy, but... Mm. I'm mean, usually the writing is so strong that it, it really doesn't matter. It's just part of the fun. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I think we've hit on it. Writing is the reason it is, uh, it stuck around as long as it has Rod Serling. I don't know how he was so good. He wrote 90 something episodes of, yeah. you know, that's, that's pretty amazing. I mean, he's, I don't know where it all came from. Um, <laughs> I mean, he's led an interesting life. I knew, I know he was like, uh, he was in World War II, and I think I heard he was an amateur boxer. He's just, he's a real guy, and yeah. he had these very human stories. Yeah, totally. You know, he had, I feel like he lived a life, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and that kind of informed maybe his, uh, uh, you know, his sensibilities a little bit. And he, from what I can gather, he kind of had like a Howard's in uh, awakening, like he had after the war, like serving in the war kind of informed some of his like, you know, anti like pro peace uh leanings and i don't know just like uh, yeah he he just seemed like he was a man who cared (laughs) about the world around him in a lot of ways so yeah i don't think he gets enough credit for his ability as a writer i feel like more people kind of remember him just as the presenter and the narrator of the show right he was in in my mind one of the best tv writers of all time totally yeah and you know i think that as iconic as that presence is the whole you know submitted for your approval and yeah. that great cigarette in his hand and all that i think that um you know it, it's just the show is just even the episodes that aren't written by him i think just the for lack of a better word like the vibe of the show itself it, it's all kind of an extension of his i don't know his outlook you know he, i think you know he really um it, it all comes from his brain and it's kind of remarkable how much of an influence that uh he has had with uh with the twilight zone considering how much of that is you know he's really responsible for it's you know you know even in his declining creative years i don't know how much night gallery you've watched but a little bit <laughs> there's still some good ones in there too i yeah. mean it's not as much that show doesn't hold up nearly as well it it's really uh there's some really campy looking episodes yeah. in Night Gallery. It's more of a kind of gothic, I feel like, tone that uh, I don't think carries over as well. But you know, even in that in that show, there was there's some great moments. Yeah, um, he um, he actually once he was kind of like not kicked off of it, but he was sort of talked over uh, a lot when he was trying to um, go over scripts and stuff and you know give notes on the direction of the show and by as the show like went on further and further it kind of got further away from him and he once called it manix in a cemetery which i think is <laughs> a pretty that sounds like a good, i mean i don't know about you but that sounds like an interesting show to me i'd watch that on uh tv land probably manix there's something going on in the cemetery again <laughs> every week this is weird it's like yeah. how do they keep getting him to go back to the cemetery <laughs> yeah but Twilight Zone has, uh, you know, upheld uh, a great level of quality. Just about it, its its whole whole run. Some people might argue that I think it was the fourth season where they did hour long episodes wasn't as good. But there's mm-hmm. still some good ones in there. Yeah, I wish I could have revisited some of those. For some reason, that's the one season they don't have on Netflix. I noticed that. That's weird. I don't know why that is. Um, because mm. there's one episode that in my memory was good. Uh, <laughs> 
just to go off on that for a little bit, there was an episode called Miniature with Robert Duvall. And it was about this man who's obsessed with this dollhouse and he wanted to like live in the dollhouse. And yeah. Okay. Just a great performance from Robert Duvall. And I love that episode. But yeah, I mean, I can't... Uh, I mean, I guess I didn't really look for it, but the fact that it's not on Netflix was like, eh, I got, I got enough. I got like 120 other episodes to get through. So our emphasis here was to try to find more underrated episodes, uh, which I found kind of difficult. I don't know if you had that that problem. Like, if you watch an episode and you're like, is is this under? Is this obscure enough? Is this underrated enough? Yeah. Like, did you run into that? Oh yeah, absolutely. Because not only is Twilight Zone a show that is decades old and every episode has been you know played so many times but there's such a consistent quality level that I, i'd think have an episode in mind and think oh this one not a lot of people know about and then i'll go online and you know read reviews and be, people will be like oh this is my favorite episode and i'll just be like okay there's nothing i have to scrape so far to find something but yeah but it's all relative and i think you know we found some that are probably fairly obscure right <laughs> Uh, I mean, sort of. Yeah, <laughs> we'll see. I mean, I'm sure. I'm sure. Just about every episode I'll bring up, you'll probably have heard of. Okay. I mean, but uh, to the to the common person, maybe yeah. it may be episodes they're not familiar with. Uh, but I, I don't know. I guess we'll see. Yeah. I think we should probably just uh, jump into it. If Michael, if you're ready to reveal your number five Ooh. pick, God, the pressure is on right now. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, with my number five pick, and I'm I'm not entirely sure of the order of my top five, so yeah, so I'll just say the first one that I wrote down. How about that? Uh, is a season two episode called "The Invaders," and I really like this one, and it's one that I kind of vaguely remember from childhood, and that's why I checked it out. And uh, I I actually forgotten. Uh, you know bits of it but uh it, i can definitely see why it left uh, a mark on on young me <laughs> um basically in the opening uh narration of the episode uh you see this house in this kind of secluded area in this kind of rural place and um broad serling says that this is uh you know far away from any uh urban environment that it's secluded there's no electricity there's no heating you know and he, he walks over to the window and sees this woman who's preparing dinner and then uh you know he hints at what ominous thing is gonna happen in the twilight zone and then uh what happens is a tiny uh ufo lands on top of her house on on her roof and she goes up to investigate it and she finds two tiny little, uh, tiny robots, basically, very miniature robots that come out of it. And it freaks her out. And then they begin this kind of, um, she, she initially, you know, pushes one away and then run, and then it comes back at her. And then it's kind of this cat and mouse throughout the, throughout the house thing. And it's, um, yeah, just a, a really interesting episode though, because, uh she it's almost completely dialogue free <clears throat> the actress uh agnes moorhead um who you may remember from citizen kane uh yeah she's she's able to convey so much and 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 do so much with without any dialogue that it's really outstanding like i i was just kind of in awe of her performance throughout the entire episode 
um it's a very physical performance on what on the one hand but at the same time uh there's so much like fear and panic in her eyes like the the it's just like distilled fear on screen it was really kind of breathtaking and um anyway she eventually gets the upper hand on uh one of the robots and is able to destroy it and she goes up to the roof and one of the robots kind of retreats into the little flying saucer and she begins. Uh, she begins to uh, hit the saucer and try to destroy it. And then we hear uh, the first real bit of dialogue in the episode is the robot is speaking in English, um, to, talking over to uh, Command Central and saying, uh, we're, "We've landed on a planet of giants. She's attacking us. Uh, do not. Uh, do not try to attack. Do not try to retaliate. It's not worth it." And then she's able to destroy it. And uh, then the final twist is that she look. The camera pans down to the uh, saucer and it says, "Yeah, United States Air Force space probe." And it's revealed that this is not Earth at all. Oh, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny. I saw this one for the first time uh, just about a week ago, and I was very impressed. I mean, I think the twist they don't give you that much to work with, so I think it's not hard to to come to that idea you know it that you have that in the back of your mind but that doesn't make it any less like you know just shocking when you see that reveal because you then you just think about everything you just saw and like wow this is you know the reason this person doesn't speak is probably because it's either she doesn't speak or you know just it's another language because this is like another planet and it's done so cleverly and so subtly and it's just such a great example of just uh, exquisite visual storytelling. Oh, for I sure. love the little, I love the little robots. They're, <laughs> I mean that they're they maybe be. I don't know if I'd say they're campy. They're they're kind of they're kind of yeah. funny by today's standards, but it's in the best way. It's entertaining. It kind of yeah. reminds me of those Puppet Master movies, but like <laughs> a lot better. Yeah, no it, precursor <laughs> to Puppet Master. <laughs> it's like Puppet Master Plus, man. If you if you have Puppet Master, is good. I mean, there's. There's one moment in that episode where I remember Agnes Moorhead just sits down on a bed, and then one of those things kind of pops up through this this little kind of door, like that's in the floor, and it, like with a knife, and like that that's pretty scary, you know. It's if you think about it, it's also like a a slasher movie before the that was a thing. I I, I would agree with that. Yeah, it definitely has that. Um... Yeah, that, that that aspect to it, and I, I honestly I I do think that those tiny robots. There's something kind of tactile about, like, today, that would be, like, little CGI spider monkey things jumping around and shooting lasers. It's I, I'm a little more creeped out by the little, uh, you know, Hasbro <laughs> battery-powered thing. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely gets me. And I think it's bold in this era of television where movies and TV were very wordy to do one without oh, totally. any dialogue. Yeah you know in this in this format and like that's it just seems it, it's really ahead of its time yeah. and i think it's already become one of my new favorites like yeah. I, I couldn't believe i hadn't seen this one before yeah uh, no, that's really really now, good. now i'd say it's a must see must see <laughs> yeah totally and it was it was that one was that a richard matheson who uh who's behind that one the writing yeah i think it was uh yeah, it was Richard Matheson and then uh, Douglas Hayes as the director. Yeah, mm. yeah. I feel like I also read that Rod Serling said that was his favorite episode that he didn't write. Oh wow, I didn't know that. That's awesome. Yeah, that's cool. Oh, and a score by Jerry Goldsmith, by the way. Oh yeah, yeah, good score. So, you know, it's got it's got Rod's seal of approval. 
Okay, awesome. All right. Uh, I guess I'll move on to my number five. Uh, it, it was one I hadn't seen until recently. I don't I don't know that it's an amazing episode, but I, I, I really like the twist in this one. And I think it's, it's a good one to watch for Halloween time. And that's an episode called uh, The After Hours, season one. It was written by Rod Serling, and it's about this this woman played by uh, Anne Francis, and she's in this department store, and she looks kind of frazzled, and she's she's looking for an item, and she goes to a uh, an elevator man, I guess that's what they're <laughs> called, and she says she's looking for a gold thimble, and this this elevator uh, man is being really rude to her, and we're not really sure why, and he he tells her that the only place he can find this gold thimble is on the ninth floor. And uh, they go up to the ninth floor. Of course, the, uh, I don't know what you call that thing on the top of an elevator, the little arrow that switches to each floor. <laughs> yeah. It only goes up to eight. So it goes past the eight. And then this, uh, this woman is on this top floor. There's literally nothing in there. It's just, it's all empty. But then she runs into this, uh, this woman who we assume is an employee who has the thimble. And she gives it to her. And she's also very rude to her. And she just asks her, like, are you happy? And, and you're wondering, what the hell is going on here? Uh, and then she, she, she leaves there. She goes back down to the main floor. And then she realizes this thimble has a scratch on it. So she goes to the complaints department. And she goes uh, to complain to the manager and says, I have this, this thimble and it's scratched. I got it on the ninth floor. And they tell her there is no ninth floor. Mm-hmm. So you're like, what the hell? <laughs> so as it proceeds, this woman, you know, she starts thinking, am I, am I crazy? But then she sees the employee that she uh, she originally bought the thimble from, and she goes to approach her, and she's a mannequin. It's soon that this, uh, this, this person realizes the elevator man was also a mannequin, and that this is a store where the mannequins come to life and interact with people. And I'll cut ahead to the end. Um, I don't know if you've seen this one or not, so I hope I'm not spoiling anything. I feel like I've we're going to spoil all of these. <laughs> if you want to talk about them, you got to spoil them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No and uh, the twist being that this woman realized that she is, in fact, also a mannequin, and that uh, they have this this deal, all the mannequins, where one of them, uh, for one, I think it's a month, a, a year, can go out into the world and do stuff. This this uh, particular woman was out too long, so she got kind of confused, and you know, at the end they. Uh, well, the, the, the employee who, who sold her the ring, or the, excuse me, the thimble, it was her time, so that's why she was so rude. Everyone's mad at her. And uh, so this, this woman, Anne Francis, goes back to being her mannequin self as another person goes out into the world. And I think why I like this episode so much is there's just so many great scenes of once you're aware that these mannequins are alive, of, of Anne Francis walking through this store and then just looking at them, and the camera keeps cutting to them really quick really scary shots and you hear like little voices here and there it's like you know these things are alive but they look so lifeless and i think just that paranoia sums up the fear of twilight zone just so perfectly again i don't know if it's an amazing episode but i think if you're looking for one that's scary i think this is definitely one of the ones to check out yeah it's it's one that I think can kind of get under your skin a little bit, you know, it's maybe it's just that ending. I think it's the ending. That's just very strong. And I I don't know. It's just so effective, you know, the way that she just kind of, I don't don't know if she surrenders at the end. Would you say? I'd say so. Yeah. Surrenders, you know, the, but she, in a way that she's, she kind of gives in, even though there's some hesitation, but I, I don't know. There's just something, uh, I don't know, dark and, and 
uh, just spooky. <laughs> it, it, it really is um, a really good Halloween one, too, because it's not, you know, it's not like capital H horror either, but there, there's something that I think can kind of crawl into your mind a little bit about that one. That's something the show is really good at, too, you know? Like, I, I don't even think... Like, talking about these two episodes, the the Invaders and the After Hours, if there were, like, an anthology show like Twilight Zone on today, or even just, I don't know, any kind of uh, sci-fi horror kind of thing going on, mm-hmm. I don't think you would see episodes like this nowadays. Or maybe you would, but I, I think certainly back then those were new to you know to tv what rod serling and his uh, his staff were doing like writing th- th- those kinds of stories in that kind of way like that's it's really really impressive absolutely all right michael you're number four yeah my next episode and this is one that i kind of i guess i kind of learned after the fact that this was more of a popular episode than i thought so maybe not underrated, but certainly a very effective episode is Five Characters in Search of an Exit. Now, this episode starts off in a, a, a very strange kind of environment with a, a very strange setup. You see a guy in full military garb waking up in this room that he's, uh, you know, clearly has no idea how he got there. He, he wakes up confused and startled. And as he gets up and walks around and kind of investigates his surroundings, you know, he's wondering how he got there and where this is. And he stumbles upon, uh, you know, nightmare situation number one. He stumbles upon a clown. (laughs) A clown is in the room. (laughs) (laughs) He feels around. He he sees this clown and and they're talking. And the clown is this uh, very eccentric guy. And uh, the he explains that he knows that he's a colonel or he knows that he's a major but he doesn't know who what his name is he doesn't know why he's here and the and then the clown points out that he doesn't either and that he, none of the other three people who come out at that time a hobo a bagpiper and a uh, ballerina dancer they don't know who they are either or how they got there and uh you know that obviously makes the major panic and he tries to uh you know frantically tries to find a way out and and starts asking people well haven't you any memory of who you are haven't you ever tried to get out of there and they all just say they they've all either resigned themselves to their strange fate or they you know kind of begrudgingly accepts where they are you know the clown seems to be (laughs) have some sort of insanity <laughs> to him and then you know the the bagpiper just plays his bagpipes the dancer is just kind of very sadly resigned to it but uh and so the major comes to the conclusion that they are in hell and that uh they're being punished and uh the dancer i, I guess sort of forms has some sympathy for uh the major whereas you know the hobo is just very sad and and resigned to his fate and the clown just kind of mocks the major for (laughs) having any kind of uh (laughs) desire to to leave after they've obviously been stuck in there for so long and so um she kind of encourages him and, and they make a plan to get out of there they all stand on each other's you know 
on each other's uh, shoulders. It, to be clear, this is like a cylinder room, like a big circular room where they can mm-hmm. see the sky and they can't um, reach the top because it's, it's so high up. And oh, and I should also admit, God, I'm doing such a great job of recapping this. No, you're doing great. <laughs> they they hear a sound of a very large chime, a very large bell every uh, so often. So anyway, they uh, he's able to get uh, just to the top, and with the dancer on his shoulders, she can just get out of reach, uh, but they can't quite make it. So they fall to the floor and uh, you know again they just say, oh, accept it. You know this is where we are this is uh, how it's supposed to be but uh they try again and and he's able to get to the top he gets out and he gets on top and they they ask him what do you see what's out there where are we and just then he falls and he falls into the snow and then the the twist is the very next shot you see right where the major was but it's a toy major uh toy soldier uh figure in the snow a little girl picks him up and goes up to a lady who's uh, ringing her bell and saying, oh, I think this one uh, fell out. She's like, oh, okay, put that one back in there. You know, this is Christmas Eve, and we got to get these toy donations. Uh, yeah, that's the twist. <laughs> is that it's like, so it's, it's basically Toy Story. It's Toy Story on crack. <laughs> on crack. Just like Goosebumps oh, on crack is Twilight Zone's Toy Story on crack. Oh, that's that's a that's a great choice. I love that episode. I remember the first time I, I saw that one. I was sick home from school, and I and I and I watched it, and I was like, "This is the weirdest cast they've ever put together for an episode." <laughs> I did not see the ending coming at all. I feel yeah. like it's pretty clever. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think when you that if there's one great thing about this episode is that um, that I th- think makes it uh, so strong right from the outset is that you really are guessing because. Not only are you as confused as the major is about where they are and all that, but that assortment of characters, you're kind of putting it together in your head. Okay, what do, what did these five people have in common? Well, why would a clown make? And it, you know, you're sort of adding it up. But at the same time, it's not. Some, I don't think it's something that you can immediately come to. Uh, you know, I could be wrong, but I doubt that anybody has ever seen the episode completely cold and been able to figure it out before it ends. What you know, the situation is because it is just. Um, you know, very mysterious, but at the same time, it's not a completely out of left field uh, twist. Like it does make sense, and I think it's just you know, uh, I, I think there's kind of an existential element to it. I think you know, I, I don't know if the, what the influences were in the writing of this episode, or if it's you know just something that happens to kind of be in the same category but it's kind of like no exit or um you know something kind of in that vein of sartre i hope i'm pronouncing his name right (laughs) this sartre you know or even the title i think is a reference to six characters in search of an author which is another play that you know it's I don't know. It, it it sort of has these existentialist themes, but it, it's not done in like a pretentious way. It, it's just kind of presented in like a compelling way, in in a way that you actually feel kind of the terror of being in that situation. Like when he's grabbing the walls, and mm-hmm. you know, like that that panic is just very primal and very real. And I, I don't know. I, I think it just that's another one where I saw as uh, as a kid and i couldn't stop thinking about it for days like that it's so good and i mean if 
earlier I was talking about how I was impressed by Twilight Zone being a show that was restrained and, and self-contained. I mean, it doesn't get much more self-contained than two, you know, a bunch of characters trapped in this small area for, you know, a whole episode. Like, it, it could be a play, you know? And, you know, it's funny because I did actually have the pleasure once in Seattle of seeing um, Twilight Zone live on stage. Oh, wow. Where they did episodes. I can't remember. I, I mean, I was a little kid. I was probably 11. I can't remember if they did that one, but I want to say that they did. Uh, it was it was very interesting, and so many of them transitioned so well. Except for some reason, they decided to do the uh, the the William Shatner on a plane episode, which was a little ambitious for the stage. <laughs> I'll say that, but that was still entertaining. Yeah. But no, five characters search of an exit. Now that's you know I really wanted to uh, to to revisit it, but I was having that debate with myself. Like, is this is this well known enough? Like, I don't know. I mean, I don't think it really matters because, I mean, at the end of the day. People should check out all of these. Like, yeah. uh, I don't know. Um, yeah, I think that's so. a, that's a, that's a great one. I I love that one so much. I wish you know I'll have to watch it later. <laughs> <laughs> totally. That's what I'm gonna say. Pretty much, probably for any one that you list, that I was like, oh, I you're you know right. I haven't seen it or I I need to check that one out again. Yeah, yeah, totally. Who wrote that one? Was that a Rod Serling written episode? Uh, yeah, I think Rod Serling actually wrote it, and the story was him and uh, another writer. I can look that up. Um, uh let's see what it was <laughs> sorry one second yeah okay the the episode is written by uh rod serling and it was based on a story called the uh the depository by marvin petal the depository yeah which i've never read All right. so that's cool <laughs> i don't think i've read any twilight zone episodes like their original short stories uh yeah Actually, uh, okay. Well, I'll. I don't want to spoil it. Go, yeah. Ignore this. <laughs> Good. All right. I I guess I'll move on to my my number four, which was also based off a short story. This choice was kind of inspired by the Eye of the Beholder episode. I mean, everyone knows that episode. That's a classic one. But number twelve looks just like you. Is kind of a similar idea done in a different way. Now, this is an episode where in the future. Uh, once you reach a certain age, I think it's something like 19, you go through a process known as the transformation where you either uh, pick between one type of person, like a, your physical appearance, or another type of person. Like, I want to be look like number 8, I want to look like number 12. So everybody, it only has like three actors in it then, you know, or three or four actors. Everyone looks just like, you know, who they want to be. And so the plot concerns this girl who's uh, 18 years old, uh, played by Colin Wilcox, and uh, her mother is trying to convince her to go through with it. And you know, oh, you should you should pick number twelve. It looks just like you. But this girl's having like her reservations. She likes how she looks, and she looks at pictures of her mom from before she went through the transformation. And she says she looks beautiful, but it's like, oh no, that's not beautiful. And it's kind of just this whole. Uh, uh, struggle with this girl trying to decide if she's going to go through with it or if, if she can take she if she can take it and uh she knows her father who's now passed on went through this and he had his his problems with it and so she's uh trying to decide um but anyways i'll just cut ahead to the end that's what i'm gonna do for most of mine i'm gonna do like <laughs> one sentence and then cut to the end okay uh she does go with through with it and everyone's all happy and it's 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 incredibly disturbing you know this is another one that i picked mostly for how just 
irked I felt at the end. Just like, ew. Just the fact that this person had all these these concerns about going through this procedure and then and then does it. And then it's like, everything's okay. It's just like how just changing your appearance, just, it just brainwashes you. And that's that's something I felt is is can still uh, be very powerful today. You know, the uh, the obsession of, of looking a certain way, you know, or, and being a certain age, you know, that's something that has kind of a timeless feel to it. And uh, I think that's what makes the episode so great. Uh, on a side note, something I thought I'd point out that was kind of funny is um, since this episode is set in the distant future, there's a couple of references to other things in the future that were uh, a little silly <laughs> that I, I I just had to write down because it made me laugh. Like there's there's one line where the, the main character, she uh, she talks about how everyone, you know, talks about like everyone won't stop talking about, you know, electronic baseball or super soccer. <laughs> <laughs> super soccer and, I, and i'm like what the hell is super soccer it's just like one of those things where it's like <laughs> we got to make it sound really futuristic yeah and it's set in like the year 2000 and also her uh her dad he worked for the rocket service uh that's adorable that's that's just an adorable look at what the future is but aside from those those references i wouldn't say there's uh, anything else about this episode that's cheesy i mean everyone wears jumpsuits with their names on it but that also makes it kind of creepy like yeah. you can't even tell who anybody is everybody looks the same yeah and that is just so unbelievably disturbing and uh earlier i was gonna talk about who who wrote it but i was a little confused because it was based off of a short story by someone who normally was a writer on the show oh so if, if i'm correct it says the episode was written by john tomerlin adapted from charles beaumont's 1952 story the beautiful people and i know that charles beaumont yeah. was one of the uh, writers on the Twilight Zone. I think he did about twenty something episodes. I know he did the Living Doll oh, wow. episode, which is a classic. Yeah. Uh, he did some great ones. Uh, but yeah, this one I'd seen before, and it just it just really unsettles me how it kind of presents itself as ending on a happy note, but it's it's not happy because that's not what the character wanted, really. Yeah. I don't know. Have you have you seen this one? Yeah, you know, I have actually never seen this one. Um, I, I am familiar with it, but I've never actually watched it. And uh, yeah, you know that it, I, that's that's one that I'm kind of like. Everything about that is it just seems kind of up my alley. Like that's something that I would definitely be interested in. And I think that's yeah. um, probably the f- first sci-fi one. So, f- or I guess the Invaders was sci-fi, but yeah, uh, yeah, I don't know. That's very overtly kind of um, sci-fi and. I think that, from what I can tell from what you've said, it sort of speaks to the future anxiety aspect of the show that um, I think a lot of the, maybe not a lot, but a few of the sci-fi episodes kind of had, wouldn't you say? Mm-hmm. Like, there's some sort of... Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, I don't know. There's uh, Maybe it's just the, I don't know, the, the rapid changing of technology and... Um, sort of the many fears wrapped around that uh, at the time i think that kind of found its way into the writing and you know i don't know but, uh, maybe that's that's an example i guess <laughs> of that absolutely and it was hard kind of, it's kind of hard for me to talk about because uh, a great deal of the episode is dialogue and it's it's just characters in rooms talking about this you know, it's very simple. It's it's that reserved style again. Like like I said, it's set in the future, but it doesn't do anything to make itself ridiculous. Whereas I feel like if this was an episode made in, in modern day, there'd be some more goofy future technology or something, you know? Yeah, yeah. 
uh, and it's impressive for the 1950s, you know, uh, seeing that that was a time when you had movies like Forbidden Planet and these. Not that that's that's a great movie, but you know, these uh, these uh, there's a fascination with uh, space and and sci-fi and kind of the goofiness of it. So it's interesting to see a show explore kind of more the uh, the psychological ramifications and anxieties behind the future. And that's something that the show always did very well. So number 12 looks just like you is my number four. Michael, you're number three. All right, my number three, and this is uh, kind of foreshadowed when we were talking about uh, short story adaptations uh, earlier. Uh, my number three is An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. And that's interesting for a couple of reasons. Uh, for one thing, it is... Uh, based on a short story that is that predates uh, you know the Twilight Zone. It's from the 1800s, 1890s, I believe. And um, but even on top of that, the episode itself is actually a short film uh, made in France that was um, you know it's kind of was a sensation at the Cannes Film Festival, and I think it actually had an Academy Award uh, nomination. And so it was just, it's a very successful um, French uh, short film, but it uh, was later um, screened on The Twilight Zone. And it was, I, I, I don't know the exact behind the scenes story, um, but I, I think one of the producers of The Twilight Zone uh, looks like it's William Frog, William Frog, Frog, whatever, um, bought the rights to it and um, made it a Twilight Zone episode. So uh even though it, it's not it doesn't come from the twilight zone i i think it's I, i'm choosing it because i think it's still nonetheless like a great example of uh i, I don't know of, of the themes of the twilight zone of the atmosphere of the twilight zone while at the same time very much its own thing and i think because of that when people are talking about great twilight, twilight zone episodes it doesn't really get included as one of the you know iconic you know canonical ones but um so yeah I'm, I'm choosing that one and for those who don't know occurrence at all creek bridge basically starts off with uh a bunch of union soldiers are about to execute by hanging a uh, a civilian who a civilian prisoner who um is guilty of interfering with um i guess it's complied with bridges and tunnels uh that were that the union um soldiers have been using so um you know the, the whole ceremony begins and as this man's about to die he kind of uh thinks back to his his wife and his family his children and it's all flashes before him and then he's dropped from the bridge the uh owl creek bridge of the title and as he's dropped though the rope that he was being uh he was to be hanged with uh it breaks off and he just falls into the water and then he you know unties himself and he's able to escape them the soldiers are you know run after him and they try shooting him and then you know he manages to get out of the water and and go through the woods and just as he's going everything uh he goes down a road to his house that leads perfectly to his home and he's able to kind of just a path is basically laid out for him he, he walks home and he sees his wife and his wife is uh, waiting there with open arms and and the the man runs toward her and they they're crying with joy and, and as just as he's uh about to embrace her 
uh, he his neck jerks back and he falls and it cuts back to him hanging on the bridge and the twist is that everything that had just happened was all a fantasy and that uh, you know none of it ever happened he was uh, successfully executed um, and yeah that I actually watched this episode before I'd ever read the story and it, it's I think it's notable for a couple of reasons just talking about uh, aesthetically it, it really shows that this was not you know a television production um, you know Twilight Zone episodes are often like there's some great directors who have directed Twilight Zone episodes and uh, I think visually the show is often really stunning but I think this is just a very cinematic episode in a lot of ways. I think it's very lyrical. There's, it's when he's in the forest and he's uh, kind of going through the the raging waters. There's just, there's just a lot of like interludes of of. It, it's so much of it is just a mood and atmosphere that is being created that it's really something. And then uh, his performance, uh, the actor. Uh, not sure uh his name is roger jacquet uh he he does just a great job of the kind of he doesn't overplay it but there there you can sense the uh elation of having escaped and then the joy of being able to reach his wife again and then he just does a fantastic job as an actor and then seeing such a I don't know, such an episode that's not really concerned so much with plot, but just with those, like I said, it's just very lyrical. And then, of course, that twist, I, I think it's just so, it's heart-wrenching. It, it's absolutely stunning. Um, the From the way that it's uh, directed to just the very jarring, quick cut back to the bridge, um, you know, it, it's, it's an image that's really stuck with me, and if I... Um, I don't know if there's just an image of dashed um, of of dashed hope of, of of good things being lost. You know that that's I think that's a great image is his neck being jerked back and, and then um, you know ending up on the bridge and and just kind of the the barbaric you know uh, practice of execution in general. It, it, I think everything about it is just uh, it's not scary in in a way that it's. Uh, it's, it's trying to terrify you but it, it just it, it says something i think in, in a very kind of subtle way and I, I like it a lot it's one of my favorite episodes yeah wow you know i've never seen the episode but i've i've read up on it a little bit uh and i'm looking at some screenshots and i'm definitely impressed by how it looks so yeah. it i mean I, I it looks pretty cinematic i mean is it all on location or? yeah i don't know um I would assume I believe it was filmed in France. I, I, I'm pretty sure. Maybe I'm, I'm wrong about that, but um, yeah, you know, it is definitely cinematic. And I'm seeing here that it, it was not not only nominated, but it won the Academy Award for a live action short film, and also won uh, best short subject at, at the Cannes Film Festival in 1962. So yeah, it, it's definitely cinematic, and um, I, I think it, it really stands as an example of uh, visually, uh, you know, what the not not only um, it's not only visually stunning, but I think a lot of people kind of at, at that time, from what I can understand, uh, not a lot of care went into doing like otherworldly sort of stories, and you know, even though this isn't like a hard sci-fi or hard horror episode or anything like that. 
it, there, there's just a lot of craft to it and again you know it's not it wasn't an in-house production for the twilight zone but i think it's it's so much in the spirit of what rod serling uh was about and what the show was trying to achieve that i i kind of i don't know i count it as one i guess and uh i i think it's absolutely not only an underrated one but i think it's one of my top five just period wow yeah now i really want to see it uh i have one more question is does this one have dialogue um or was it like because it's french made i mean how did they go about oh, that was yeah. there you know there's no i yeah i believe there's no dialogue I, I thought maybe at the beginning with the soldiers but i think maybe that's just like kind of generic uh shouting maybe when he gets away but maybe mm-hmm. maybe even then as far as i maybe it says something about how good the episode is that i don't even remember if there's <laughs> it doesn't even dialogue. matter you're just so engrossed in the visual elements yeah of the narrative yeah no it, it's um yeah, I believe not. Mm. Wow, fantastic! I I think that one is in the bunch with the uh, all the other episodes on Netflix, so it's you know it is it, it's totally legit. It's totally part of the show. You know, even though they they got it from this other source, I think you're <laughs> right. It's definitely in the spirit, so yeah, it's at home. And I bet you know, I bet anything, even though it won an Academy Award, the Twilight Zone has helped kept its you know, memory alive. Cause, oh yeah, I mean, who, how else would someone remember this short from? you know early 60s totally. but, uh, no i i got it i gotta check it out that sounds that sounds fantastic yeah all right my number three pick is uh and when the sky was opened it is season one episode 11 and it is uh written it was written by rod serling based on a short story by richard matheson and when the sky was opened is kind of that classic paranoia story that the Twilight Zone was so good at. It It concerns three astronauts who've just returned from a uh, a mission where they were uh, flying an experimental aircraft uh, into space, and they they disappear from the radar for for a while, and then they reappear. And the episode begins with a a colonel played by Rod Taylor, and he's talking to uh, another guy who was on the ship uh, I believe he's played by Jim Hutton, and he has, uh, he's kind of like injured, so he's in bed. And Rod Taylor is, 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 uh, brings him this newspaper, and he's, uh, he's like, do you, do, you know, do you know something wrong with this newspaper? And he goes, I don't know what you're talking about. It's just the picture of two astronauts you know, went up into space. And he's like, there was three of us. And this other character has absolutely no recollection of there being a third person. And this Rod Taylor character starts going around talking to people saying don't you remember there's three people that went up and then you know came back down here but everyone's saying no it's just the two of you and then the episode kind of takes an interesting turn where it goes to a flashback where it shows rod taylor with this uh third astronaut uh played by charles aidman his character's name is harrington and it shows them before the mission no it's, it's right after the mission and uh, they're they're coming back and they're going to a bar and they're just kind of talking about you know whatever shooting the shit and then this uh, this character this Harrington character starts kind of like uh, just like uh, just losing his composure like they're in a bar and he drops like a, uh, his uh, bottle and he just starts feeling kind of like he's saying he's feeling kind of empty and he's just feeling weird and then he gets the sudden urge to call his folks back home and he does that. And then he, he returns and he's telling Rod Taylor, he's telling um he's telling him that I called my family and they said they you know, that I was some stranger, like they didn't uh they'd never heard of me and, and he doesn't he doesn't know what's going on. And then eventually this guy just plain up vanishes. 
and Rod Taylor's freaking out. As the episode progresses, it takes an interesting kind of twist in the middle where at one point, uh, the man who's bedridden, the uh, Jim Hutton character, his name is Major Gart, uh, is talking to a nurse and he's like, oh, I haven't seen, you know, such as Rod Taylor. His, his character's name is Colonel Forbes. I haven't seen him in a while. And they're like, who are you talking about? And then he sees the newspaper and it says one astronaut has returned from this mission. So now he realizes, uh, you know, oh, my God, we're actually disappearing and people don't remember we ever existed. But what's interesting is you just took out the protagonist of the the episode, <laughs> threw him out and, and pass it on to this other guy. And it makes it more scary because at first he was just being told all this. and He's like, oh, come on, this is ridiculous. But now he realizes this is very real and I'm going to be next. And of course, as it progresses, uh, it ends with this this hot this uh, empty hospital room and there's an empty hangar where the ship was like the ship never returned and it's just this progression of of um, in a way what's like the most terrifying thing you could think of it's just like if you never existed mm-hmm. and and just like the ramifications of like someone knowing that like there's going to be a point where I'm just not going to exist like any time now and that is so terrifying and I think just psychologically it's one of the scariest episodes I can think of so I just had to uh, I just had to include it on my list have you have you checked this one out Michael yeah and you know that, yeah. that's a good point too that having the protagonist is it really just makes that that sense of dread and <laughs> and panic like it, it really uh, brings it home you know that that's a really interesting uh, just a really powerful choice and really powerful writing you said that's a, that's another um, one that was based on uh, Richard Matheson's story, and then it was okay. yeah a Richard Matheson work. Okay, cool. Well, yeah, I mean Richard Matheson, that's definitely up his alley when it comes to like this kind of episode. And I don't know, like I, I love that it, it takes this kind of. I, I think there's a basic fear like um, at the heart of it of like you dying and then being forgotten from this earth, and and you're you know the idea of being nothing but a memory one day is scary but then the idea of not even being that is is even scarier and like that i think they tapped into that and then try and you know uh, explore that using this great you know concept the, the great tool of, of of these astronauts literally disappearing from existence you know past present future like I, I it just gets to it like a human fear and and you have to kind of squint at it and look at it sideways you know to see where that's coming from and, and but it, but just like taking it as its own as like a great like sci-fi story it, it's just so good that's that's a great choice i love that episode yeah and like i was saying i just i i've, I've i definitely have an attraction to those episodes of of a guy's like why won't anyone believe me <laughs> and then it ends in like the most shocking way yeah. those are those always have, they're tense all the way through, and then they always have a great build up to the end. Yeah, yeah. Really give you that one-two punch, and God, yeah. And I love it. It's one I've I've been a big fan of for a long time. Of, uh, and I was surprised that it's not usually considered up, you know, as like one of the better ones. But I think it's a, yeah, solid. I wonder episode. why that is. Is it just because it's like a season one episode, and they hadn't like, I don't know. I mean, if you look at the episodes of Twilight Zone that are often considered to be the best, they're, they're normally ones, I feel like, that have uh, one in particular really memorable scene or a really memorable monster. Yeah. You know, they're, they're, they're ones that have, I guess, just something very unique about that one episode that jumps out at people. Not necessarily even, I'd even say, the best. I mean, I don't know. Some of them are pretty good. <laughs> yeah, uh, maybe no, we can talk I- about that later. Yeah, for, yeah. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. 
this is an episode that I think uh, I actually I'm putting on this this because I underrated it initially. This is an episode that I saw um, for the first time a few years ago, actually, for um, when I was going through a little Twilight Zone kick. I was going through the episodes. I saw this episode, kind of didn't love it, and then I rewatched it again just recently for this podcast, and I've uh, come around on it, I think. And uh, that episode is Death's Head Revisited. And um, the episode, basically, it starts out with this man who's uh he's checking into a hotel it's basically uh as as rod sterling says uh that it, it, it's this place in in germany it's uh, uh a, a small bavarian uh village that's that's how he uh, describes it a small bavarian village eight miles northwest of munich and uh it's kind of a uh it's it's a beautiful beautiful village but in located in that village is a uh concentrate is the site of a concentration camp you know this is this takes place in the current day of that episode uh so this takes place in 1961 and as the man checks into the hotel the man's name is mr schmidt uh or that's the name he goes by now as a civilian the woman recognizes him uh somewhat and to her horror she puts two and two together that this man was uh, a nazi this man was a former captain in the ss and that he was um you know he, he oversaw the uh, concentration camp and you know so she very fearfully uh checks him in and then he goes out to the camp oh, and i should point out that this is actually uh based on the real uh Dachau concentration camp and I, I think they actually say it by name at one point so uh he goes over to this is a fictional character though um they go over to he goes over to the um uh, to the concentration camp and sort of kind of takes a trip down memory lane like he smiles as he uh thinks of him waking up uh the prisoners in the morning and uh you know force forcing the inmates to you know to do degrading things and, and um basically he he just kind of uh, revels in all the the torture that he inflicted on on fellow human beings and um takes pride in the suffering they felt um, so he's walking around the gallows and he has flashbacks of the hanging bodies and, and of all these things. And as just as he's about to leave, he sees a man and he, he takes a look at the man. He's kind of startled by him and he realizes uh, that he's one of the camp's uh, former inmates. And so they, they talk and uh, the inmate whose name is Becker, Becker starts uh, really tearing into to schmidt about uh about basically his why he would come back and and why uh how how he lives with himself and and the what he what he did to them and he just uh kind of very like robotically just repeats that he was carrying out the orders of his superiors that he didn't uh, know the extent of uh, of you know the 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 terror that the third reich was 
that they were inflicting on the Jewish people. And he's just, oh, you know, I'm just a middleman. I was just, you know, and but he's not quite afraid yet. So, uh, but as he starts to leave, the door closes on him and he can't escape. And then he runs into uh, the place where he was just inside of where he was flashing back. On the, it's basically where they would, where they slept. And he, he runs inside and he's surrounded by so many, uh, by the entire camp. And he comes to realize that these are all people that are dead. These are all people that he oversaw the deaths of and they put him on trial of for crimes against humanity and they find him guilty and uh right as becker's about to pronounce his sentence that's when he realizes that uh you know these are these are all men that he purpose he uh put on trial himself that he that he executed there um so and that they are going to do enact upon him the same horrors that he did to them and so he just he runs around the camp as uh, becker it, you know recounts everything that he did and uh he, he just he feels the pain of of being hung he feels the pain of being beaten and then he he, he tries to run to the gate but he screams and falls to the ground and then uh the next scene we see are police officers and and medics taking him away taking him to the hospital and uh they're taken to a mental hospital and the doctor who looks at him says uh you know that he's been driven insane and then uh what, what's really great about this episode is that the the last thing that the doctor says he kind of takes a look around and says you know Decau, why does it still stand why do we keep this standing and then what follows is some of the best writing that Rod Serling, I think, ever did. Rod Serling's closing narration for this episode is really spectacular. And I I, I hope I am able to pronounce all these words right, because I, I really want to do justice to the, uh, this great narration. He says, There is an answer to the doctor's question. All the Dachau's must remain standing. The Dachau's, the Belsons, the Buchenwalds, the Auschwitzes, all of them. They must remain standing because they are a monument to a moment in time when some men decide to turn the earth into a graveyard. Into it, they shoveled all of their reason, their logic, their knowledge, but worst of all, their conscience. And the moment we forget this, the moment we cease to be haunted by its remembrance, then we become the gravediggers. Something to dwell on and to remember, not only in the twilight zone, but wherever men walk God's earth. Uh, which, holy shit. That, 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 yeah, wow, geez. Yeah. That's powerful stuff. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, it, it really... It, in it, if, Even the ending of that where it says, not only in the Twilight Zone, but wherever men walk God's earth, for me, that seemed like the real Rod Sterling was kind of stepping out for a second and and, <laughs> and sort of uh, shaking the viewer and saying, okay, this is an episode of the Twilight Zone, but, but this goes so far beyond a, a TV program. This is like a very important message and uh in doing research for the episode i found out that it was it it, it kind of came on the heels of uh, adolf eichmann's trial uh you know the he was, a, he was a nazi who uh fled to argentina and was you know tried and convicted for war crimes and it, so it was very much in the public mind at the time these issues and the idea of you know why are these places left standing and and I think it's just very powerful, and it's it's a very real. Uh, there's just so much. Uh, it's just fucking great, you know. It, it it just feels like he's 
like he's making such a great point about humanity and, and, and why we it's so important that we that this the story of the horrors of the holocaust always be told and always be remembered and, you know it's just it works so well and it's so well written and i think initially i just when i first saw it i guess i was just thinking oh well you know that that's that's a good episode but you know there's not much to it i guess but then i i god i was an idiot because because <laughs> there is so much you know it's just the the terror of this uh and, and it's so amazingly performed too uh oscar berigi Beregi jr uh plays schmidt or captain lutz is his real name and it, he does a fantastic job of just being very uh his his pride you know it, it could very much be like a mustache twirly kind of thing but no he, he plays it as like a real as real evil and i appreciate that and then uh becker is played by a guy named uh joseph schildkraut schildkraut and i i think that's his performance is one of my favorite twilight zone uh performances i, I think he he really knocked it out of the park so yeah that's um hugely underrated including by me but uh, i mean yeah, yeah really i've never even seen it why why do you think it uh i mean it's, it's obviously not one of the considered one of the classic episodes mm-hmm. i mean it but it sounds pretty uh, moving i mean why do you why do you think it's it's been over overshadowed by so many other episodes you know i think it's because uh it's not something you can uh when you're at a campfire uh you can't tell your friends oh the guy who was on a plane and saw uh you know a a, a gremlin on the wing or uh you right. know it, it's something that you really have to um experience i think because it it's uh it's just it's something that's that's real you know the not the ghosts, you know, but well, in a way, the ghosts, you know, the mm-hmm. I, I think the, the something that that's uh, I don't know sp- speaks to what humanity is uh, unfortunately capable of, but also you know why we must remember that. I, I think it's, it's something that you can't really put down in a and here's the twist kind of thing. But even right. so, like it, it, despite that, it just it really sticks with you. You know, it, it took me kind of a second viewing to really. Uh, to really get that but I, I think it's one of the the great episodes of the show and I think for Rod Serling I think it's a huge achievement on his part as, as a writer I think that's you know I, I hope he was very proud of that one because it's really good it sounds fairly personal too I mean I know he was a former war vet he had post-war trauma mm. I'm, su- I'm surprised he didn't do more episodes like this maybe this this kind of subject matter was just either too hard for uh, the studio to pass on or if it was just too like mm. hard for him to tackle as a subject i don't know yeah. but uh, yeah wow <laughs> that 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 uh closing uh narration that that's something i hadn't heard that but that wow yeah. gives me chills <laughs> totally very cool yeah. Whew, okay uh <laughs> yeah i have a bunch I have a much lighter episode to transition into. <laughs> That's um, probably good then. For my number two pick. Yeah. Actually, my number two pick is probably my sole sentimental pick. <laughs> though I do feel like it's one of the underrated sentimental episodes. And that's uh, an episode from season three called The Hunt. And it was written by Earl, Hammer, uh, Earl Hamner Jr., who wrote a couple other episodes, but none of them are really like big ones they're mostly ones later on in the show he did a lot of kind of uh, folksy rural settings for his stories but this story concerns an old man 
played by Arthur Honeycutt, and the character's name is Hyder Simpson, and he lives with his uh, wife and his hound dog out in the sticks, and they live a very simple life. He's very attached to his dog, but his wife's not too crazy about his dog. And then one day he takes his dog out on a uh, raccoon hunting trip, and the dog chases after it into like a small pond, and uh, Hyder chases after him, and then they get out and they uh, uh, he saves the dog, and then they they kind of pass out, and then they they wake up the next day and they're they're kind of walking around, and they they feel kind of weird, and they they go back to his his house, and he tries to talk to his wife, um, but he can't, he can't talk to anyone, and he realizes that him and the dog didn't actually get out of the pond they both died so now they're dead and they're just kind of wandering around their town and eventually they find this old uh this like this trail where they meet this this man and uh he's 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 telling them that if you go down this trail you can go to the elysian fields you know like this could potentially be saint peter like this is the where i gotta go to to get to paradise and he's has this conversation with this guy um but then this this uh, this gatekeeper of sorts tells him, but you can't you can't bring the dog. The dog starts like growling and barking at him. You can't bring it. We don't allow that. He's gonna go to another paradise. And this guy's this old man is like, well, this dog is all I have. And they're like, if this paradise isn't you know, if my dog can't go here too, like then I it's just not it's not right for me. Like, it, and the guy's telling him, but no, you'll just wander you know in limbo for the rest of your life. He's like, it's just I, I just can't do it. So the man, the old man, Hyder, he just he, he goes on his way, and then he runs into this this more folksy guy, and uh, he he starts talking about him, and this guy, uh, it basically claims to be Saint Peter, and he's like, wait, I was just talking to who what I thought was Saint Peter. And that guy says, no, that wasn't Saint Peter, that was the devil. It's like, you uh, and the dog could tell that the dog could sniff him out. The dog knew that this was. Uh, this this wasn't heaven because you, you you know all dogs go to heaven like the movie. <laughs> and so he finds that this is the real paradise he can bring his dog here and uh so Hyder and his dog they they go with this folksy guy and he makes his way to uh to heaven and there's just something about this episode that resonates with me and that it seems so simple it almost seems like an old fable you'd hear this very simple story about you know people's connection to animals and yeah. How they can be clever, and you know, you you try not to be deceived. I don't know. It's just, <laughs> uh, and this this character, this Arthur Honeycutt, this Hyder Simpson character, is just so likable. This, this lovable old coot, and it's it's uh it's it's very sentimental, and just the connection between him and his dog is very sweet. And I don't know. It's it's always resonated with me, but I never hear anyone talk about it. Um, but no, I'm a big fan of the hunt. <laughs> Have you uh, seen the hunt? Yeah, that's a, that's another one that I I forgot until you just mentioned it. So I, I guess I'm I'm one of the people that always forgets about it. But I no, I remember as a kid uh, loving that episode. You know, as a, <laughs> I think partly as a dog lover. <laughs> I mean, I could see that. Yeah. It's definitely one of those simpler stories that I could feel like a kid could appreciate. Yeah, totally. I and I think it's. Um, I, I, yeah, having a it's one that you can easily have a sentimental attachment to. Like it, it does kind of feel like one of those old fables that gets passed around. It, it has that you know has that aspect to it, and I don't know. It was very. I think it might have been like a relief after like an episode of uh, oh you were going to disappear and everyone you've ever loved will forget you. And it's like ah, and then the next episode's like oh and here's a cute dog story. And it's like oh thank God. 
I'm only eight years old. I can't handle it. Um, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and yeah, it's really nice. It's very sweet. And uh, I don't know. I, I like that one a lot. That's a good one. I mean, I don't think there's much to say about it. Even the closing narration is incredibly short. It's just, travelers to unknown regions would be well advised to take along the family dog. He could just save you from entering the wrong gate. At least it happened that way once in a mountainous area. <laughs> of the there's really not much to that. It basically just describes the plot of the episode. Yeah. I like I like that because it, all of a sudden it's uh, you know Rod Sterling's little musings column in the newspaper. Travelers to unknown regions would be well advised to take along the family dog. At least that's what I've always found. I'm Rod Sterling. <laughs> You've been in the Twilight Zone. I like that. But yeah, definitely a nice, sweet little break from a show that could be, you know, just so disturbing and <laughs> psychologically damaging sometimes. Yeah, it, so many so mental I'm... scars, you need a <laughs> need one every once in a while. All right, that being said, Michael, I'm dying to know what your, what your number one choice was for a great underrated episode. Okay, yeah, I, I'm choosing this as my number one, um, I, I guess... I don't necessarily think this is, like, an amazing episode that's been looked over, but it's an episode that I've brought up a bunch of times, uh, (laughs) like, thinking that it's going to be, like, one, oh, yeah, I remember that episode. Nobody ever remembers it, even people that are, like, into the Twilight Zone. And this is kind of like the hunt in that it's clearly... uh, It's a a break from the norm. It's supposed to be a little bit sweeter. And that episode is Once Upon a Time from season three, which is another one that was written by Richard Matheson and starring Buster Keaton. You know, it's, oh, yeah, yeah, it's the a Buster Keaton performance um, in, you know, 1961. Um, basically, Buster Keaton plays uh, Woodrow Mulligan, who's a janitor in the year 1890. And he walks around, and he's just, he hates 1890, basically. Um, <laughs> everything is too, uh, the prices of things, and, and the and the cops are on his back, man, for being clumsy, as, <laughs> which is very typical of Buster Keaton's characters. Um, yeah, and, and just, you know, people on bikes knocking him down, and, and livestock roaming the streets. So, um... He works as a janitor for Professor Gilbert, and Professor Gilbert has just invented a time helmet, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's a <laughs> helmet that takes you through time. Um, and so the professor and his assistant they they unveil they unveil the time helmet. Uh, you know, Woodrow kind of overhears, and they go to get some champagne to celebrate. But Mulligan, he you know he strikes when <laughs> he sees the opportunity. He grabs the helmet and he goes to 1962, and of course, like all time travel things, uh, the caveat here is that um, uh, you can only go there for 30 minutes uh, before you have to go back; otherwise, you're stuck wherever you are. So uh, he goes to 1962, and to his <laughs> to his consternation, uh, it's louder than 1890. There's more people; cars are everywhere instead of just you know the occasional bicycle. It's loud as hell. There's uh, there's jazz music playing, <laughs> playing from the from the street, and uh, you know, so it's very overwhelming. Uh, so he he wants to use the helmet, but the, through a series of wacky mishaps that seem to happen to Buster Keaton a lot. Uh, first, a kid on roller skates picks up the helmet, and uh, you know 
he he tries to chase after it and then a cop chases after him and and he, you know throughout all this by the way he went back in time without his pants he, for, he forgot his pants of course <laughs> and uh you know and he meets a guy named rollo who's played by stanley adams and he's a scientist and he's uh kind of a he considers himself like a an 1890s buff <laughs> like he he's he regards it as like a, a quaint little time in history like oh gosh it's all flooding back yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah he he's um he loves 18 he's like one of those uh, tumbler people who's like i was born in the wrong decade <laughs> um but that's the perfect way you could <laughs> <laughs> of, of 1961 he's the tom um yeah so he they take him the the helmet uh to this kind of tinkerer uh this you know, the, to this guy um as uh, to kind of give it a give it a world to try to repair it and uh you know <laughs> Lester Keaton, you know, all along the way, there's, you know, many mishaps with the police officer chasing him, and he tries to steal a pair of pants from this manager of a clothing store. The clothing store makes, tries to make him pay and all that. Anyway, at the end of the, um, at the end of that, though, uh, Rollo grabs the helmet, and he tries to go back alone because he wants uh, to live in the 1890s. Uh, but Woodrow uh, is able to jump on him so that they both go back together. When it flashes to I think two weeks later, and it shows Mulligan walking down the street in a mirror of the opening scene, and this time instead of being annoyed, he's just you know he has a spring in his step. He he greets the animals. He he's he greets the cop. He, I think he kisses the cop. And, you know he's he's overjoyed. And then of course Rollo he hates the eighteen nineties. He there's uh, no. Um, uh, I don't know. He said one of the one of the things he, he there's no bikini. There's there's no you know television. <laughs> um, so and, you know he puts on the helmet for uh, he takes the helmet for 1960. He puts it on Rollo's head and he goes back to his own time. Now for, there's many things to talk about about this episode. For one thing, uh, the beginning of the episode, every part of the episode that takes place in 1890 is completely done like a silent film mm-hmm. you know there's uh, the music is uh, like the piano that um you would uh piano accompaniment that you would find in an actual like rag yeah l- exactly and um you know there's the dialogue is uh, completely on intertitles you know there's no spoken dialogue it's all you know on the screen written and it's uh degraded film stock you know it's purposely done uh you know to, to look as if it's this is actually from you know the early 20s and you know basically like a, an early buster keaton movie and um you know uh then when it goes to the 60s it, it's you know regular twilight zone episode and uh there's one of the things i love about this episode is that uh the things that it says that it does to signify that he's in now in the present you know the very futuristic 1961 uh one of the things is a television which he thinks oh there's that guy in a window talking to me like he's having a conversation with the guy on tv because he just thinks it's some guy in a window but uh, which is like i like that on its own it's very charming but then also like it the tv takes a little while to turn on <laughs> so it, it just it's nice to see what 1961 thought of as like their cutting edge technology this big tv and or the jazz music that's playing you know that crazy yeah. hot jazz, you know um 
So I like that a lot. And I just, I, I like it as a tribute to Buster Keaton, you know? I think the whole thing in, in a big way was uh, a tip of a hat to his kind of cinematic legacy. And it's great to see Buster Keaton on screen, you know, this is a, f- a few years before uh, he passed away, but, um, you know, frankly, he's still got it. Uh, you know, he's a little bit slower and, and less agile <laughs> than he used to be, but uh, there's, you know, he, he can still pull off those great slapstick moments and, and physical comedy. And uh, I don't know. I, I just, I, I like that it's a very, uh, it's, it's one of the comedy episodes of The Twilight Zone, and... Uh, I, I just appreciate it as kind of an outlier in uh, you know in the series and as an homage to Buster Keaton and I don't know I, I just I'm not saying it's a masterpiece but I like it a lot and I like that you know Buster Keaton gets uh, you know this one of the great television shows of all time did an episode you know honoring one of the great filmmakers film performers of all time so I like it a lot I mean, yeah, it was just an inspired choice to bring him on to do this kind of episode. I don't know how they came up with that concept of portraying the past as a silent movie, but it's brilliant, and it just works so well. And I love fish-out-of-water stories like this. And especially, it's especially a treat because, you know, Buster Keaton was a silent film star, so it's not often that you get to see him do work that's not silent. So that's a treat in itself, and he still gives an amazing performance, even at this age you know, and in, and in the early 60s, he's still a comedy legend. And I also love the fact that he's from this period of time where the real Buster Keaton, you know, would have been uh, just doing great. And he hates it. You know, it's, there's something so funny about yeah. that choice. And, you know, it's funny when you're talking about this episode, I totally forgot about the, the Rolo character <laughs> and just that that character and that performance yeah. uh, is just such a great uh, counterpart to... Uh, to Woodrow Mulligan and I, I yeah I think it really is one of the funniest episodes of the show and just unique I mean how many other uh, time travel stories have ever approached uh, a time period by just doing it in a, a totally different thematic style right. like that like that's that's pretty incredible no it's it's great I think that's a great choice and I I love that episode I love the time helmet <laughs> yeah with the you sparks know, something, on it <laughs> you know yeah uh, we need more time helmets and time travel. Games. Damn straight, man. It's a great device. <laughs> I feel like that sets the tone for everything. I think so. You know where this is going. Time <laughs> yeah, helmet. There's a time helmet. That's how we're getting through time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I love it. All right. I guess uh, should I go on to my number one then? Absolutely. I'm excited. Are we ready? Okay. <laughs> uh, for picking my number one, I went with an episode that I felt was underrated um, and I tried to go with one that I feel like really summed up the show. So I went with something that had a, a great twist, um, some great sci-fi elements, and some great performances. So for my number one underrated episode, I went with the Rip Van Winkle caper, which ah. stars Simon Oakland and Oscar Breggy Jr., who we were just talking about. Oh, wow, yeah. Yeah, and so this is an episode about a group of crooks who've just stolen a bunch of gold bricks from a train. And they head out into the desert, and they're going to hide them in this cave. Uh, of course, the Simon Oakland character, his name is DeCruz. He's, you know, he's pretty worried that the, the, the heat, you know, the heat's on them. They can't do anything with his gold. But then Oscar Breggy's character, his name is Farwell, uh, he tells them that he's created these devices. They're suspended animation chambers, and that they can get in these chambers and be there for 100 years, and then awake in the year 2061, 
and the heat will be off and they can use the golds however they want. So they proceed and they do it. Uh, there's two other guys too. It's a group of four guys. And uh, they awake, but they're out in the desert. Uh, DeCruz doesn't think he's in the future. He's like, I'm, I'm not convinced this worked. I mean, it looks exactly the same. But then Farwell shows him one of the other guys, uh, suspended animation chambers. It's been cracked. It's full-on skeleton, not even any clothes. He's totally he's totally dead. So it's been about 100 years, and uh, they're stoked, but it's also it's frightening. They're in the future, and uh, DeCruz immediately gets paranoid of, of his uh, teammates. And this quickly leads him to, it seems way, like he does not need to do this, but he gets suspicious of another uh, another one of the team members, and he runs him over with a car, and then crashes the car, and says, "Okay, we're gonna fill our uh, our backpacks with the gold, and we're just gonna walk instead, because that means I can keep an eye on you. We you know we know where we stand, so let's go." So they proceed through the desert, and they eventually find a road. So it's just to cruise and Farwell walking down this long road with these heavy bags of gold, and Farwell realizes he doesn't have any water, and he's just he just can't take the extreme conditions. But DeCruz still has a full water bottle. So he says, I'll give you a sip if you give me a bar of gold. So he does that. And this proceeds, and Farwell keeps giving him gold because he just can't take the heat, and he keeps giving him gold, and he keeps giving him gold until he's he's essentially got just two left. And then DeCruz says, you know, I've, I've changed my mind. Now it's two bars of gold for a sip. And Farwell is just pushed to the edge, and he takes one of his bars of gold and he kills DeCruz with it and and now he's just it's just him he drops his pack he just keeps walking down this road he's got these two bars of gold eventually he just can't take the heat and he he, he falls to the ground and then we have this this man who approaches him this man in all black kind of a kind of like a general zod type <laughs> outfit and uh and he he finds farwell and and Farwell's telling him like I'll give you my gold if you just you know if you can just help me get me to a town or anything, and then Farwell just can't take it and he just dies, and um, this uh, this this future man walks back to his car with the bar of gold which is a like futuristic bubble car, uh, and his girlfriend or wife is in there, and and she's like what was that he's like oh just some some derelict and you know it's crazy he gave me this bar of gold it's almost like he thought it was worth something and she's like wasn't it worth something once he's like well a hundred years ago maybe but you know eventually they found a way to manufacture it so and then you do this great twist there's these these guys that were basically killing each other over this gold only to find in the future it had absolutely no value they might as well have been carrying rocks mm. And there's just something, just the irony. It just, and it's, it's just, it sums up what I love about Twilight Zone. These, these, these big shocker endings, these amazing performances, uh, just how like the future can change things. I, I feel like it, it, it encapsulates so much of what's so great about the show, and, uh, and it's one of my favorites. I, I hadn't seen it in a while, and I revisited it just a couple days ago, and it's still just, it's just great entertainment, and uh, one of my favorites, definitely. Wow. Yeah. That's a good one, yeah. I, I, you know, I have a vague memory of seeing that as a kid, but I, for some reason, I feel like I never watched the whole thing because I, all I remember is uh, the only part of that that sounded really familiar to me was him taking the gold and killing him. But um, yeah, that's a, that's a great ending. That's that's totally uh, you know very that's very Twilight Zone. You know, that, did Serling write that himself? He did. Okay. Yeah, that, that's very Rod Sterling. 
and the performances that um once again i feel like it kind of takes a unique twist when uh i mean simon oakland seems to be the main character i mean he's basically the bad guy (laughs) but it's most of the focus is on him so i was really surprised actually when oscar breggy takes one of the bricks and kills him and it's like now this this weird german scientist character (laughs) is the only one left yeah and i thought that was really interesting and he's fantastic as well he's He's a very likable character, and it's just, you wouldn't expect to see, I mean, with this kind of story, you'd normally expect to be just, like, a bunch of, like, kind of no-nonsense, no-nonsense crooks, not this weird German scientist to be among them yeah. as this criminal. It's just such a unique, uh, just great character, and the back and forth between him and Simon Oakland, I'm, and I'm a Simon Oakland fan. A lot of people say, I mean, a lot of people just remember Simon Oakland for being in the worst scene in Psycho, but <laughs> he's done some... He's done some great, uh, some great uh, TV appearances. I used to love him on the show Kolchak of the Night Stalker. Ooh, in the I know that you're a huge fan of that one. Yeah, yeah. I, I say it like I was around back then. I used to like him back, <laughs> back in the seventies. But, but he's just like the ultimate asshole, and he <laughs> totally gets what he deserves. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, yeah. That I'm really glad that um, you pointed out to me. I, I didn't realize that uh, I'm gonna get his name wrong again. Uh, Oscar Bereggi. Something like yeah. that. <laughs> he that he's in that episode too because I he was really great in and Death Head Revisited. So I, I'd I'd like to watch that episode and see his performance in this because uh, fan of him now. Um, and yeah, no that that great ending of uh, it, you know what you know men will they they will kill they they will suspend themselves uh, they will freeze their bodies for years and murder for for you know riches for financial gain. And then it's ultimately all for naught, you know. I, I and that's a great, you know, sci-fi, you know, way to take that story. And I, I just, you know, I, I love the Twilight Zone for stories like that. So that's a really good one. So I thought it'd be fun to take a moment to just talk about some of our, uh, probably not as in depth, but some of our other just favorite episodes in general. Yeah. Uh, I guess I can go first on this one. Um, I think there's two episodes in particular that I've always considered among my favorites but i thought they were um they're fairly well rated and uh i i decided to you know leave it to more obscure ones and i think those are uh walking distance is one of my favorite episodes mm-hmm. first season a uh, man this uh stressed businessman kind of returns to uh his hometown where he grew up and he has all these memories and then he, he realizes he's gone back through time and it's back around when he's a kid and he tries to talk to his past self and that's just a great sentimental episode i'm i'm a big fan of that one and then I think my favorite episode of the Twilight Zone is the Christmas episode Night of the Meek oh. with Art Carney. And that, that I think just because it's such a great tearjerker about this this drunk who, who plays a play Art Carney, who plays a Santa Claus at a store, and he gets fired because he's a drunk and he's, his, his life's in ruins. And then he finds this bag, and when he touches it, he can bring all these gifts out of it. But when anyone else touches it, it's just garbage. Mm. And... That one, although shot on video, which a handful of episodes were, it does not look good. <laughs> just amazing performance from Mark Carney, and just it's also got that what's his name, John, uh, the guy who did who's the voice of Piglet <laughs> back in the day, uh, who's also in uh, 12, 12 Angry oh, Men. Oh, uh, yeah, John Fidler, yeah, yeah, something so, like yeah, that. Okay. He's he's of course hilarious, yeah, yeah. and uh, yeah, just a very emotional, just a great episode. Yeah, that's yeah. And uh, I think those are my top two. What about you, Michael? You know, uh, the more I think about it, 
and I, I guess I feel weird putting it up there, but I, I think in my top two in occurrence at Owl uh, Creek Bridge would have to be kind of top three, top five, somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. Since we already uh, talked about that one, uh, I don't know. Um, one that I, I was always really unnerved by, and I think when it comes to just how frightening the show can be, uh, I always thought Little Girl Lost was, was really oh, effective. Yeah. And... You know, that's another great Richard Matheson one. And it, it was originally a short story, but he also adapted it for the show. And uh, and it, it's really well directed, for one thing. It's directed by Paul Stewart. Um, it, it's, it, it's very effective in, in kind of the... I don't know, kind of, kind of the tension that it builds, you know, in sort of the, the mystery of it it's never it's one of those mysteries where it's not so much that you want to find out what you do want to find out what happened but it's more just you're also kind of i don't know you're you're in a state of complete like tension and 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 it's just very disturbing in a very subtle way and it's got a great uh, score by uh, bernard herman you know one of the great uh film composers there it's a very cinematic episode in a lot of ways i think and um, I don't know. I think that's a, I don't know, the fear that, that a parent would have in that situation. I just, I've always been really unnerved by it. I actually think about it a lot, honestly. I've had, I had dreams about it for a while. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a really great one. Another one. Parodied on the Simpsons. Yeah, oh God, that's a great Simpsons parody. Homer Yeah, that's the, that's my favorite <laughs> Treehouse of Horror, uh, honestly. Um, yeah. So that one, Owl Creek Bridge, and I I hate to say this because we've just talked so much about underrated episodes, but, uh, you know, who am I kidding? Uh, Monsters do on, on Maple Street. That That's just a classic. That's just a classic piece of writing, you know? That's something that... Yeah, maybe the best episode of the whole yeah, show. Yeah, I think that's one of the maybe. best episodes of television, you know? I think that's a, a great achievement. Um, and I... You were talking earlier about Twilight Zone. Uh, you know the pl- what, what did you see in Seattle? The uh, st- live on, yeah, on stage. Uh, well, at Saint John Vianney Catholic School, when I was in elementary school, I saw a production <laughs> of The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. Um, I was kind of taken out of it, taken out of it by the fact that um, all the people on Maple Street were all wearing the red and white uniforms of Saint John Vianney Catholic School. Uh, but but yeah no I, I remember seeing that and it was after I'd already seen the episode and like very excitedly telling all my friends and my teacher oh I know what this is from this is from the Twilight Zone you know the Twilight Zone and that was like the first time I ever like got really nerdy about something in in front of people so yeah great great episode yeah oh yeah and in honor of Halloween I thought it'd be. I mean, we've talked about a lot of episodes, but I thought it'd be fun to recommend uh, my uh, my personal choice for scariest episode, and that has to go to the episode The Masks. Ah, uh, yeah. Which, to this day, scares the hell out of me. <laughs> it scared me as a kid, and it still scares me today. And uh, that's an episode where a dying old man is with his family, and they're going to get his inheritance but he hates them. They're all very cruel people. So he says, well, you know, I'll give you my inheritance if you all just wear these masks. Mm. 
for this one night and their hideous grotesque masks. He says they fit their personalities. And then what happens? The next day, they take off all their masks and they look exactly like that. So they have all the money, but now they're all hideously deformed. And they're just so terrifying looking. Like, ugh. Like, just looking at the makeup, it's still scary. I wouldn't even say it's cheesy. It's just, ugh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) And that's a Rod Serling written episode. (sighs) Take that, Goosebumps. (laughs) Yeah, no, that is extremely scary to this day. Like, you ever watch, like, you just look at still images of it. It's really good. Oh, yeah. You think about it, these people are going to look like that for the rest of their life. Great episode. <laughs> what about you, Michael? Is there is there a, a front runner for you for scariest episode? You know, I, I would say The Masks is up there. I would, you know, and even though it's not scary in the same way, I would say the uh, Little Girl Lost one is definitely up mm-hmm. there like a different kind of fear i don't know i think it's a good life yeah. is very scary i think the situation of it's a good life is very scary you know i, I think that's the, <laughs> those are the episodes that really frighten me are the ones where the scenario and the implications of it the things that are kind of um i don't know the the things that uh you you have to fill in the blanks in your head oh if this is what's happening then that means like that's what really scares me so an episode like that um uh really gets to me or something like uh the howling man or uh i don't know there's things like that those are the really scary ones to me it's it's crazy how many uh how many great episodes there there are to pick from even when the twilight zone wasn't great it was still good you know it's just a an amazing show, one of my all-time favorite shows, and I think even after this uh, podcast, I'm probably going to keep kind of in the mood. I'm probably going to keep watching some <laughs> of these. Uh, definitely some of the ones uh, that you mentioned that I haven't seen yet. I'm definitely going to check those. Likewise, out. yeah. Uh, so those are our, our picks for underrated Twilight Zone episodes. If you managed to make it through all of that, <laughs> and if you did, if if you did manage to make it through that, we are also going to return to our beloved Netflix randomizer feature. Yeah. Uh, for the first time in a while, to uh, have our pick for the next episode, and I've got it all set up here. Uh, basically, I'm on the uh, Netflix Randomizer app on all flicks, and I'm not really setting any parameters here. I'm just setting it to movies. Um, and we don't usually do documentaries or comedy specials, even though those seem to get recommended quite a, quite a few times. Um, I'm just going to go at it. So here is the first selection. First choice is a movie called The Last Letter from 2012. 95 minutes, it's a thriller. Uh, Sharon Leal and Omari Hardwick had an all-star cast. <laughs> which is, I've never heard of either of them. In this twisted psychological thriller as newlyweds Catherine and Michael. That is the whole plot description. I could tell you the poster is a uh, married couple, and in between them there's like a the poster's like torn, and there's a face of another man, but it's all like has a red filter over it. Ooh. It looks very bad. This is like a really crappy thriller. <laughs> I don't recognize a single name in the cast. Okay. Um, reviews don't look great, but it's short. Could be funny. The Last Letter, 2012. Last letter. All right, I am going again. Fantastic Voyage, 1966. Uh-huh. Uh, 101 minutes, sci-fi and fantasy. A group of medical experts miniaturize themselves to enter the body of an ailing scientist. But Traitor seeks to undermine their dangerous mission. But Traitor? I think they mean but a Traitor. <laughs> but Traitor. 
unless there's a character named John Trader. You betrayed us. <laughs> no, I've, I've, you know, of course, I think most people have probably heard of the Fantastic Voyage, yeah. but I've never seen it. Uh, it's got Raquel Welch and Edmund O'Brien and Donald Pleasance. So I love that. Could Pleasance. be kind of fun. Right, yeah. Directed by Richard Fleischer. He did uh, Soiling uh, Green, and ah, uh, yeah. uh, among others. Was this was this associated with Disney in any way, or is this his own? Oh, uh, I don't know. I don't. I don't uh, maybe not. I feel like I'd know if it was. I, you know, like the black hole. I was wondering if it was one of those kind of I, things. I don't but, think uh, it is. Uh, yeah. Okay. But that could be interesting. So, uh, okay, let's go on to the third pick from the Netflix randomizer. It's something called Rosewood Lane, 2011, 96 minutes thriller. After her father dies, radio talk show psychiatrist Dr. Sunny Blake moves into her childhood home. She soon discovers the psychopathic paperboy may have had something to do with her father's death, and now he's going after her. And this stars uh, Rose McGowan, oh. and it's directed by uh, Victor Salvo, oh. who I am familiar with. He's a very controversial yeah. figure um, in, in cinema. Yeah, uh, um. he's, he's got some... Very shady past. Right, uh, right. I haven't heard of this one, so I see it kind of sucks. But uh, sometimes those are those are interesting to explore. Okay. Uh, so you know we'll uh, we'll try to decide between those three picks, and we'll let you know on next week's episode. Yeah. And now I have a nice little uh, narration to uh, to carry us out. So until then, we'll see you. There you have it, two men powerless at the very thing they put their trust into, a cinematic slot machine with little care for the common man. Just another game that we like to play on Stream Police. Mm-hmm.